0: From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we're looking back to a fascinating and insightful conversation with the great director Jonathan Demme, who passed away last week at age 73. As part of our 2012 series celebrating 50 years of the New York Film Festival, Demme stopped by the Film Society to screen and discuss two of his early films that premiered at NYFF, 1977's Citizens Band, and 1980s Melvin and Howard. Sitting down with program director Richard Pena, as well as actor and frequent collaborator Paul LaMatte, Demi gave the packed house a very personal look into the beginnings of his incredible career. Let's go now to their conversation. <laughs>
1: I talk too much when I drink coffee, so I got half and half. Decaf and regular. (laughs) I know it's strange, but I'm from California.
2: So (laughs) let me start off if I can. Jonathan, you came to Handle with Garrison Band after three films with Roger Corman. Can you talk about that transition from Cormanville to Paramount? And what were the different cultures like?
3: Well, the the Corman movies were were you know had their f- their formula, um, as much as anything. I mean, they were they were defined by the fact that they had you know like a lot of action, they had n- nudity, uh, they had humor, uh, they had they had like all the ingre- as much as possible with all these ingredients, and um, you know it was fun working with those formulas. You know, I grew up on them as a as a kid going to the drive-in, and then when I got the script for Citizens Man, um, it was one of the things I loved about it was that. There was no violence, there was no nudity. There you know, was all this stuff. There were just these great characters. Also, I had been saddled with scripts that I had written uh, for my Corman movies. That's how I got to direct them, um, package deal. And now suddenly, here was this wonderful screen with these great characters. And I had, um, you know, was a big Paul LeMat fan. And the casting started with, with Paul. Very picky actor, and I think he liked the, the kind of the, the off-formula thing as well, I think. And, um, you know, it, it all started there, and uh, it, was, it was quite an experience. It, it, it got very complicated after that because, you know, the stu- there was all kinds of studio stuff, and the, studio st- the, 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 the administration that had green-lighted it or lit it or what have you got fired just as we finished our movie, and a whole new gang came in. And um, also, our producer, uh, the late Freddie Fields, um, just, it was the first time he had produced a movie, and he wanted to change everything. But luckily, the way we shot it, we didn't give them too many opportunities to change, things. we shot it the old-fashioned way, where, like, this is the coverage, there is no coverage. Um, so that was, that was really it, and it was the first time I ever really got the chance to work with amazing actors, like Paul and, and Martian, and, and, and I learned so much about working with, with actors then. One of the things I learned with Paul was, if if I had an idea, after take one, and I thought it was worth, you know, I still was trying to figure out what a director did, it was only my, my fourth movie. So I, I learned, because Paul, t- like, so I'd go over and I'd, I'd tell him an idea, and then I'd stand there waiting for some kind of, like, response, like, okay I'll okay, I'll do that. And Paul was just like, <laughs> Look at me like that. I have come to understand that means I'm creating a character here. No, no, no. And you can fertilize me with no, a little sun, but then get out of my face. I'm not here to talk with you. I'm here to...
1: Oh, no, you're remembering somebody else. I wouldn't do that. I, I absorb what the creative people say, and I incorporate that into my performance. Although it is true, actors, we prepare... Uh, for what we're gonna do, and we have a certain mindset because of it. So when somebody makes a suggestion, it just takes a while, that's all. And then we go ahead and do it.
2: <laughs> Paul, talk a little bit about working on the film, and especially, I mean, it's such a rich ensemble piece with so many different parts going. What's it like to work in that piece? Were you aware of everything going on?
1: That, not really, but that's great because you have more days off. Uh, <laughs> you, and you can relax and study your lines. And the director, though, however, he has to be there every day, which I feel sorry for them. Uh, like George Lucas in American Graffiti, he had to work his butt off. And a lot of us weren't working on certain days because the movie had different uh, segments with different characters in it. So we got to rest, and he he was he lost a lot of weight. I'm serious. You could see the weight he lost. Jonathan didn't lose any because he has always been thin, but uh, I he, he uh, both George Lucas and Jonathan Demi have, a, a, at least at that time, they, they wanted rehearsals, and uh, in movie making, uh, especially if it's not a big budget, you don't have time to rehearse, but uh, they took the time to do it, and I, I loved it as an actor, we all appreciated that. Remember, we go to the sports coach and rehearse, and uh, then we had the scenes down before we even shot them.
3: I would like to say that it's it's. I remember we did some rehearsal, and and uh, it's funny because I think one of one of the things that I love so much about your acting, and I loved it on the set uh, when it happened, and I love it uh, in the finished films is 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 the unrehearsed stuff that you do in the moment, stuff that I don't think is I think it's beyond rehearsal. Uh, it uh, you know your your ability to like, get lost in the moment. And really, there's like, we're just watching tonight, there were so many things that I was just like, just remembering how dazzled I was at the time, you know, like the... Oh, thank you, Jonathan. You know,
1: is your mic working? And I don't think it's working. Everybody can hear him,
3: though.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, what did you just say? Could you repeat that?
2: Repeat that? He just liked what you said. I know, Jonathan. it was a compliment.
1: Yeah, I try to be real. You know, I studied acting here in New York a long time ago. And they were teaching to be real is kind of the method acting. And so sometimes the scenes are realer than in other times. Sometimes I feel like I'm acting. Sometimes I, I really believe the person in front of me is the character. Um, it's not so much what the other person is doing. It's just sort of whether you can concentrate enough to, to um, feel like you're right there in that moment talking to that person or listening to that person. And interesting things come out of that because you're, like uh, the next movie is Melvin and Howard. You know, Jason Robarts plays Howard Hughes and he was injured and I picked him up in my car and truck and, and he, I was, this, Melvin char- character was real enthusiastic about things. So I would hit him sometimes when I was talking to him. <coughs> And uh, I hit him a couple of times. Yeah, Jason would go,
3: ah, because he's supposed
1: to be injured. And I thought, that's
3: brilliant. The guy is... <laughs> but, but Paul Melvin would laugh at yeah. that, ah. Like. Yeah. It was kind of this whole thing going back and forth. Well, that's
1: true. Well, they'll see that if you stay for that movie, you've got to watch Jason Robarts. He was great to work with.
2: Was there much improvisation on the set?
1: There is some, but, you know, you do have a script, and you do have producers who sort of want it to be basically what they wrote or what is written. So, uh, but, if, but if you have a creative director, uh, you can improvise and they'll go, hey, that's beautiful. Or, no, let's, let's try that again. So yeah. they can, they'll keep it if they like it, if not, you don't have to worry about it. So.
3: I was just thinking about, about the casting for Melvin and Howard, which kind of, it's, it was an interesting kind of Hollywood situation because um, I got sent that script and um, I was you know so anxious to work with Paul again because I had really enjoyed the experience and thought the results were terrific. And I read Melvin and Howard and I just went, oh my God, you know this is a fantastic uh, script. It's a great great script. It wound up winning the Oscar for best Original Screenplay. a fantastic script. And I imagined that if we had Paul Amat as Melvin, and Roberts Blossom, who, who played Papa Thermodyne, that this would be you know, a fantastic combination. Indeed, it would have been. One of the things I love, I think Roberts Blossom, of course, is a great actor, but he, um, he also was not very well known, so the, kind of that mysterious aspect of Howard Hughes could be served that way. So anyway, what I discovered was that the studio had been, they hadn't closed any deals, but they were negotiating with Gary Busey for the part of Melvin, and with Jason Robards for the part of Howard. You, you know this. <laughs> like, uh, and then, uh, and I was like, well, there's no way that I want to work with that cast. You know, that, this is what directors are supposed to have very strong opinions. I want to work with Paul and Roberts. So what came, excuse me, what came back was, they they said, they negotiated and they said, well, we like the Paul Lematt idea. That's great, but we insist on Jason Robards, because he's you know, Jason Robards. And, um, you know, take it or leave it. So I was like, hmm, because I love the script. And here, here was this opportunity. And, and as I hear myself tell this, it sounds so ludicrous that I was like, hmm, Jason Robards. <laughs> so, um, so they say, look, why don't you meet Jason? Uh, and, and you guys can talk, and then you can make your mind up. So I said, "Okay, <laughs> you know, like, what, a, what an asshole!" You know, so I said, "Okay." So we, we met at um, a French restaurant uh, for a, a uh, for a, a non-alcoholic drink uh, that that uh, that Jason had chosen, and um, I went in there uh, to meet him. And um, he, he's, I sit down and goes like, hey, how you doing? And he said, he said, you really should cast me in this part because my middle name, because uh, 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 Howard Hughes' middle name was Robard, mm-hmm. right? Howard R Hughes. He says, so they, they're alone you should cast me. And he says, I know you want this Blossoms guy. He's terrific. Uh, and I know the kind of jam you're in. You know, and I was like, <laughs> I know, so I'm like, "Uh," You're like, and there's Jason Robards now. <laughs> You know, and I'm like, oh God, you know. So, um, uh, obviously I made the correct decision. And um, it was, it, was it, it, it worked out very well. In fact, I think, yeah, yeah, it just worked out so great. I, I, I love that film and I love the experience of making it. And um, Roberts would have been fabulous. Oh, he would have been great. He was
1: a great actor and he helped me a lot in, uh, it's got two titles, Handle With Care or Citizens Band. Take your pick. Because it's had two titles.
2: Can you tell if, us about how that happened? You, how did you get two titles?
1: I don't really know, except I mean, if you go on IMDb, that uh, that has uh, sites for all c- movies, you'll see it's under Handle with Care, and uh, I think it was Freddie Fields who thought uh, that Citizens Band. He maybe did some research, I don't know, but he said that it, the title wasn't bringing in the audience like we'd, we'd hoped. They, they, he thought that there were, since there was, it was a big CB craze going on in the 70s, and he thought they'd just flock to the theater. But I guess they're too busy talking on their radios to go into a movie, so he decided to change the title. And I remember Jonathan and I, were, and everybody was trying to come up with the title, but that's what we ended up with.
2: Jonathan, I think the...
3: The version at the New York Film Festival though
2: was different than the release version, wasn't it?
3: Well, w- what happened in a nutshell was, that, and there was, a, there was that other thing that I'm just remembering, this extraordinary thing that happened in, in, in New York, an exhibition. Um, okay, so the film, um, the new regime um, didn't like the film at all. They thought it was ludicrous. The new head of production actually looked at the old um, head of production and said, what have you people been smoking here? This is the, the transition moment. Um, then Barry Diller saw it, they sh- who was the head head, who hadn't, uh, he saw it at a preview out in the valley that went very well, and Barry Diller loved it and said, no, we should, we should release this picture, it's very good. Then they kind of like were vacillating and they were doing test screenings, and it was, and, and um, the New York Film Festival uh, invited the film to be part of, of uh, uh, the festival that year. And um, I think Paramount was a little resistant, but, but they agreed to have it. And this is the version that was shown at the New York Film Festival. Um, and um, Pauline Kael was preparing her review. She loved the movie. She was preparing her review. It opened about a week later, and she went to see it at, um, at the, uh, one of the theaters on 57th Street and um, she saw that the film was not what she'd seen at the festival, it had a completely different ending. I don't, I don't even know what that other ending was. I don't think it ended with uh, the wedding. The no wedding, no wedding. Yeah, and uh, so she, Pauline Kill went public with this outrageous thing, uh, as far as she was concerned, that, that the studio changed the picture. She, I got a phone call. And said, "Is this a, is this your work?" And I was like, "What? They? I didn't even know that had happened." So, Paramount you they didn't tell you anything about the change. N- uh, no, no. I was I got fired off of this movie, and then and then some directors called Freddie Fields up and and said, "You can't do that. You know, no one will want to work with you." And I got this is in post production. There's all kinds of stuff. He just wanted to change everything. He took out. They took out all the shots of Bruce McGill in the scene when. Oh, Bruce McGill. That's his first movie, by the way. So we, you know the, these brothers. So. Um, in, in, uh, in the scene where, um, where Paul goes to his house and calls him out, and he's wearing, that t- he's wearing a T-shirt, and Freddie Fields, in his desperate desire to have an impact on this film, would have screenings in his Beverly Hills mansion night after night after night and have you know, all the, the, the superstars and celebrities come over. And one night I came into the cutting room to find our, our editor, John Link, bless his heart, removing all the shots of Bruce McGill... Um, in the T-shirt in that scene, trying to find a way to present that scene without it, because Tony Curtis had seen the movie at Freddy Fields' house the night before and thought it was disgusting to see that guy's nipple. So, did you know that? You heard no. it here
2: first, ladies and gentlemen.
3: <laughs> By the way, that—that's—I don't. know did, did anyone recognize Tony Curtis' voice in the opening sound montage? Yeah. Um, so. Now again, the way we shot it, because we shot it the old-fashioned way, they had to put the shots in. They took them out, and then they had to put them back in. So many things were being changed. Um, <laughs> but then, then, then the, so they restored um, the ending, so the release version quickly became what we saw. Like Paul said, like I said previously, nobody came to see this movie, Citizens Band. Nobody came. Um, so, but by now the reviews were terrific, and and the people at Paramount could, you know thought it was good. So, um, one of the what, what was happening while they're trying to figure everything out is one of the um, the big wonderful amazing distributors in New York, Don Rugoff, said, "I love this picture so much. What it needs is word of mouth. Um, it needs people to see it to spread the word, so they understand it's not they don't." Don't, don't, don't not see it because it's about CB. At the end of the day, that's irrelevant. So he showed the movie for free at the Waverly Cinema, which is now the IFC, for a week. And it was packed. Every day, every night, was packed. And audiences clapped at the end of it, oh, like that, and then they, they started charging, and nobody came. <laughs> So, so, blah, 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 you know? But guess what, Freddie Fields. Uh, So here we are in 2012 in Paul Matz at Lincoln Center at the Walter Reed Theater and we're still looking at it. So I think it's really exciting. (laughs) Bravo, dude. (laughs) Thanks. Can I
2: ask another question? Could you talk a little bit about working with Jordan Cronenworth? He's a cinematographer I really love. And just what was it like working with him on this?
1: I liked working with him, he was an artist, just like Jonathan, so I like working with artists. You know, he, he was looking up and staring at the walls, and I thought, what the hell is he doing? Is he, th- is he with us or, n- or not? And then it turns out he was looking at the lighting and looking at the effects he had to reproduce as the day
3: went on, like that. Jordy, um, for me to work with, was, was fantastic. I'd worked with some excellent camera people on the Corman movies, young, coming up people. Caleb D. E. Chanel shot part of one of them. And, and uh, it, we, we had good, uh, good looks, but now here's Jordan Cronenweth, who had shot a, a movie called Play It As It Lays. I don't did anyone ever see that? It's a fan- fantastic, gorgeous, gorgeous film. And he's the one that I wanted to get for this movie. Um, so, Jordy liked the script, and he came on board. And um, he's an amazing, like Paul said, an artist. And such an artist that sometimes the, um, you know, like the getting the, the day's work done wasn't as important as making the image as powerful and beautiful as it ought to be, as it could be. And um, there was one night, um, that it's a night when, when I think it's Pam comes out and visits you, at the, at the uh, a Candy comes out and visits you. But Jordy, he was setting up an outside shot and, um, by the way, I had a great assistant director on that, um, who later became producer on, on all of Larry Kasdan's movie Charlie Oaken, a brilliant AD, um, who, who taught me so much, uh, and I'd say like, cause I didn't, I still didn't, I really didn't know what I was doing by the time, even though I had done some movies already. He's
1: being humble, he knew what he was doing. Well, I, uh, I mean, he probably picked up things as time went by, well, but before this he did a movie, <clears throat> Fighting Mad, with Peter Fonda, and you can see in that movie the elements that he incorporated into uh, Citizen's Band. You know, the small town, the kind of interesting characters that are a little strange, and the tension that can exist between the characters. He brought all that out in his next movie. And I wish I had watched uh, that movie before Citizen's Band because Peter Fonda was good in it. He was good in it. He he was uh, a little tougher than I played uh, Blaine. And I wish I'd played Blaine a little tougher, but that's the way it goes.
3: I'm glad you didn't. Okay. Uh, we Thank like your softness. But but Charlie was great. I'd say to him because honestly, you know, I I when, they say when you go to when you learn when you direct for Roger Corman and you haven't been the film school as I had not, um, you know, you're conducting your education in public and you're every single moment learning, learning, learning. So the curve was was happening. But I there was key. Vacuums in, in my knowledge about it. So I would say that I'd have a good idea, but I didn't know how to how to how to like um, tell everybody how to get it. And on the Corman movies, which she shot in three weeks, it was like you're, you're just like everybody's like bap, 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 anyway. So um, I I know there was a moment at the end of the movie when when Charlie Oaken would would came to me for the scene with all the vehicles going by. It's a wonderful shot there with where, where where one vehicle leads to another and it's all synchronized and. And Charlie uh, he came over and said, "So Jonathan, what do you want to do here?" And I I said I said well, I'm, and I was trying to design the shot in my head. I was like, "Well, I think maybe it should start on 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 the priest car, and then that could somehow bring us like." And then I like this, and he goes like, "Jonathan, are you saying that you want to do one continuous shot that transfers from vehicle to vehicle in synchronization with what they're saying?" And I was like. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. He says, well, well, let me set it up, and you come back and take a look at it, and, and I'm like, okay. And he, he used to tell me, like like I would say, give some kind of like like non-answer answer to some question that Charlie had, and he'd say, would you explain that to me like a three-year-old? Because I didn't understand a word you just said. So he's always calling me out. So this night we're doing the scene out at, at, um, at uh, Blaine's farm, and Jordan's there um, setting up shot, and he's like, okay, Gary, he'd say to the the gaffer, Gary, put those Swedish filters in. And he'd look with his little black ring thing they have, and he'd go like, which one's that? Gary's said, Swedish. Okay, take it out and put the French in. Changes. Mm. Which one's this? French. Okay, take it out and put the Swedish in. Like this, (laughs) he go, he's like... Uh, like this, and at a certain point, I know that Charlie Oaken, just I don't know if you remember, it's like, Jesus, Christ, Jordan, French, Swedish, whatever it is, make a choice, we gotta shoot this, the sun's gonna come up in five minutes. Uh, so it was, <laughs> and he was always, you know, his, his work like the greatest of cinematographers trended towards, he played, he flirted with darkness in the image, that's why when we did those additional scenes in the woods, I don't even know why we did them, they they had a new cameraman come in um, who lit everything up more. And uh, did anybody see the, the grip stand handle in the wood scene at the end?
1: <laughs> Nobody saw it?
3: You, you saw it. Good, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, did anybody see the, the two guys playing the guitar in the background when when Paul goes to see Candy Clark and you can't hear anything? Anybody notice that? Yeah. That 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 what they played was supposed to score the whole scene and deliver to the next scene. But Freddie Fields thought it was too confusing <laughs> to hear the guitar music. So that came out at the mix. Oh yeah, that guitar
1: music is very confusing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Freddie, bless his heart, you know, he, he produced our movie for us, you know, but, but he, he, I'm telling you, this was, this was the old style stuff, you know, with the mix on that movie where I got fired for wasting time by trying to get the guitar music in and what have you just finally, you know, get out of here, you're fired, you know, so I left. But, but before, the, when I came back, and started watching it, I had to be very careful about what I said, you know, like this. And, and there'd be like a massage table, you know, like at mixing st- stages, I'm sure many of you have, have been on them, you know what they're like, you know, there's a screen, the mixing board is back there, like this. Freddie, bless his heart, he's out there on a massage table in front of the screen. And like, ew, 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 ew. Teams of masseuses, like, and I'm sitting there like, <laughs> And Sometimes I begged for a sound effect or I begged for there were there were things in there and then there's this crazy stuff So it was quite an experience in response. That's a long-winded response here. Yeah Jonathan
1: can talk all right (laughs) By the way about your acceptance speech at the Oscars. Oh, no, no, that's forget that Um, He won Oscar, you know Um, so uh, What was I gonna say? Oh, but you didn't have any of these troubles on Melvin and Howard, right? You no, know, nobody interfered with you. By then, they,
3: they, you know, they were with him. Until it came time to release it, right? Oh, yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> the the. Um, anybody seen Melvin and Howard? So you know what it's it's like. Thank you. Um, so so this this was a script that came to to um, Tom Mount, who was the head of young head of, of production. He was our agent, he was a fantastic guy, and he was, he was the one that was pushing pictures into production. And um, he had read this article in the newspaper one day about, um, no, his friend Don Phillips, who was our producer, had read the article, a little tiny thing that just said, will found da 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 da. And Tom Mount got the money to have universal commission, the writing of the script, and they chose Bo Goldman. Mike Nichols was going to be the original director of that movie, and they developed the script. And because the script was so fantastic, even though it was a very offbeat story, like like I'm, this movie is so offbeat, Citizens Van, My God, it seemed normal to me at the time. <laughs> now, uh, mm. so we made Melvin and Howard exactly the way we wanted to. It was not an expensive movie. This was, this was low. This movie, Citizens Van, was low budget. Melvin and Howard was quite low budget. And we made it and it, it, it did, it, that thing happened where we had a fabulous script and we wound up with a fabulous movie. Mm. And we showed it to Tom Mount and he adored it. And he said, I've got to screen this immediately for Bob Wilkinson, the head of, of distribution here at Universal, I'm like great. So we, we, the next day we have a screening for Bob Wilkinson who's an older guy, he was older than us. Um, He's probably our age now and he's, he's watching, watch the movie, and, and Don Phillips, Art Linson, our producers, myself, and Tom Mount, and the lights come up, and Bob Wilkinson looks at Tom, our boss, the head of production, and says, this was such a, a, a lesson, and says, um, um, okay, let's go back to my office, fellas. So we go now to Bob Wilkinson's office, the, the head of the vice president in charge of, of distribution. So we go in there and we sit down and he gets behind his desk. And now it was so weird seeing Tom Mount like sitting in little chairs like the rest of us. And now that's Bob Wilkinson was giant sales desk back there. And he leans across the desk. I don't know if you knew this or not. He leans across the desk and he, look and he says, Tom, it's a nice picture. And I'm gonna tell you the same thing I told you when I read the script. You're pissing in the wind if you think anyone's gonna come see this thing. And it was a staggering moment. And of course the film went on to, you know, be the opening night presentation at the New York Film Festival. 1980. Triumphant reception. Um, Melvin Dumar himself joined us in the box. It was, it was <laughs> extraordinary. Um, yeah, I remember that. And Jason was sitting next to me. Yeah. And
1: we were watching the movie and he leans over and he goes, well, I don't use the F word, but he said, look at those two effing crazy guys, meaning me and him. And I resented that. I thought, well, wait a minute now. I I, I wasn't one of the crazy guys out there in the desert. But okay, Jason, whatever you say. But yeah, the the critics loved it and it won a national Award, what was that? The National Critics Award.
3: Got so many the New York yeah. critics and um, Austrian yeah. nominations and this one thing and another, and yeah. it, it did okay business. It sure, did a lot better than Citizens Band, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, but that was like 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 such a giant leap in awareness on my part. I I never again, like I say, I was learning every day. I never understood that it's really the distribution arm of a studio that has the power. You know, they're gonna say, okay, you can make this one. And that's, I think that that's probably, you know, increased and, and become now, it's like everybody's distribution and nobody's production anymore. You know, it's kind of almost like that. He said cynically on the stage at <laughs> let's, Walter Reed's The Cinema. time we have
2: left, let's get some uh, questions from folks here. Yes, sir. Can you talk about the, well, the two screenwriters, Paul Brickman and Bo Goldman. What was it like working with each? Well, I don't
1: know, I didn't work much with them because you know, the script was finished, and I would think the same thing with Jonathan, unless there was some, tw- there was some tweaking to be done.
3: Um, I have to be honest in response to that question. It was great working with Bo Goldman, um, and it was great working with a Bo Goldman whose hand had been guided to a significant degree by Mike Nichols. Um, we had a lovely, lovely experience on Melvin and Howard. Paul Brickman, um, who was so aghast at this Roger Corman director being hired to direct his masterpiece, um, he was like he was he was even younger than we were at that time, and he just just was oh man, he just thought of it. I, I looked one day at the list of twenty two the, fil- the script had been submitted to twenty two directors before they finally sent it to me, and they sent it to me because. Because, yes, it's true, because Freddie Field's um, girlfriend, Sheree Latimer, had liked Fighting Mad, that Paul mentioned, and recommended me, and in desperation, they offered me the gig. So, Paul Brickman was very clear in his disdain for me, and he was also the associate producer of the movie, and we went up to um, Marysville. Oh. And Did that mean he actually had something? to do, Was that just an honorific ticket? Well, it can be anything. A associate producer could be anything. It's, it's often the hardest working person on the, on the production team. In this case, it was Paul's deal had, and you know, Freddie wanted to work with him more. So Paul came up to location in the role of associate producer to, to just damage control. Within the first day, he was, a, 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 and, and Wedgworth came over and said, Jonathan, was that last scene we did okay? And I was like, yeah, I was at the Chinese restaurant scene. I said, Are you kidding? It was fantastic. He said, oh, because Paul wanted to know whose idea it was to, to say it that way and this, that. And I, I'm, I'm confused, like this. And so I went to Ben Chapman, who was our, our production manager, this veteran production manager. He had been the head of production at Republic Studios. And uh, I, told, I, I appealed to him. And I said, I said Ben, I don't know what to do. I'm really furious because Paul Brickman is going now to the actors and, 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 and saying he didn't like it. And, it's, and he said, well, um, I think you should throw his ass out of town. <laughs> and I was like, can I do that? <laughs> and he said, you give me the word, he'll be on the next Greyhound out of here. Yeah, I remember this now. After right. the fact, that's right.
1: And uh, I just thought, well, they had a conflict and Paul's gone and Jonathan is here. I think Paul should have been a director and then he did direct later and yeah, a risky did a good business. good job, a job, job with job that. So business. so he couldn't control himself, you know, for his idea from with his ideas and he was infringing on Jonathan's world. And he never said anything to me by the way because I think you know, he'd already tried that, but he did one, one th- as a matter of fact, he did say one thing to me. He walked up to me uh, between a take, between takes, but he didn't say anything about my performance. He said, do you like the color of the car, you know, the nomad? And I said, yeah, I know. And I said, yeah, yeah, it's appropriate. And he said, I don't think it's the right color. He didn't. Are you sure about that? And I thought... Well, I yeah, it's appropriate. It's what do you want? You know, he wanted to be more flashy, yeah. and I thought, well, <clears throat> I don't think that's right. You know, I did a, a car movie with a red hot rod, Aloha Bobby and Rose, the name of it. Little picture. And, called
3: the Aloha Bobby and yeah, Rose, right? And
1: I, we, you know, there was a lot of discussion about the car because it was supposed to be part of the flashy, exciting thing in the movie. You know, on Sunset Boulevard and. Racing on uh, in cruising and stuff, so that was appropriate. But I thought that was a perfect color, you know. It's
3: well. Paul was on a learning curve too, and and I wasn't the good guy, and he wasn't the bad guy. We just were coming from two you know places that were in irre- irreconcilable, and uh, when uh, so I said, okay, Ben, throw him out of town, and um, about an hour later, Paul came up to me, Paul Brickman, and said. Ben talked to me, and I'm really sorry. I understand now that I shouldn't be saying stuff to the actors, and I give you my word that um, I won't interfere anymore. And I said, Paul, I'm really sorry, but you gotta go. You gotta go. Um, I just, it just, you know, when you're directing something, you know, you've got to you try your hardest to make things work the best, and the whole, your community is formed on both sides of the cameras, you know, and we're all working together, and to have, have that kind of discord, even in the scowly thing, if he's not saying anything, so, so I thought that was like, I couldn't believe I was, had done something so mean, but I understood that I also was being as professional and as grown up as I had been so far on a movie set to, to go with that, and things went really well after that. Did he ever say anything about the final product? Oh yeah, we never made up. You know, we never became friends. He never embraced the movie. Um, we got you know. <laughs> the good news was Paul wasn't there for me. The the bad news was we were getting these notes every day now. You know, and he'd look at dailies and unleash these notes. And he anyway. So the experience was yeah, not good. Yeah, for but, us. The <laughs> but the movie.
1: But the movie. Can't wait to see this
3: on YouTube. Sorry. <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, the movie was got on a lot of ten best lists. I don't think they do that anymore, but in those days they were really popular, and uh, it got on ten best lists. So I think it was successful uh, artistically and creatively, and the uh, reviewers liked it. And in fact, the you know the Washington Post critic Gary Arnold is his name, and I remember this because he put it on back to back ten best lists. He he liked the movie that much that the next year he cheated somebody out of their spot and gave it on, on, put on his next year's 10 best lists and he put in a note in there and said he just thought this film needed more recognition than it had and I thought that's quite flattering.
3: Speaking of, of Washington and, and, and Gary Arnold, um, there was the, the best review that that picture ever got that I've ever heard for anything I've ever been connected with. Um, I got a phone call saying, you know, go to D.C. because Candy Clark's friends with somebody who's um, connected in Jimmy Carter's administration and they want to see the movie at the White House. So I got into Washington. Um, I was a big Jimmy Carter fan then uh, from the moment he pardoned the draft dodgers who went to Canada without anyone asking him to. Um, I was on his side. I, I still have tremendous respect for him. Anyway, um, I was very excited to go down there, and we, we went down um, and, uh, and watched the move. met, met President Carter and uh, Rosalind and, and Brzezinski and everybody and all these, that guy, the, the general with the satchel handcuffed to him, the <laughs> thing like that, of thing and, and senators and congressmen, and, uh, the screen, and everybody got a glass of white wine, and then the screening, um, the lights go down, and um, the, um, the, the director gets to sit in a chair next to Jimmy Carter. So I'm sitting in my overstuffed chair next to him, like this, where he's right there. And at, and at a certain point, I see Amy it, Carter's daughter's like just starting to fidget around back there and stretch and stuff. I think she was like 12 and I'm like, oh my God. So, so at a certain point, She's getting up and she's coming by my chair, something like that. and I know I I, I grabbed her because the plane scene was about to come, and I was like I was like convinced if she saw the plane scene she would fall in love with the movie. So I said, go sit down, something like this. Movie goes, it's over, lights come up, President Carter looks over at me, and goes, well, that's America. Uh, I, I was like, oh, oh my God. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs>
1: Hey, I have a Jimmy Carter story that you don't know about. I happen to have had a friend on the inside of the White House uh, circle, and he was a big shot in uh, Massachusetts, and Lester Hyman was his name. I knew him for years, and I asked him, when Melvin Howard was being uh, screened in the film festival, I said, could you get on the inside and invite Rosalind and Jimmy to the uh, festival? Hmm. And he said, yeah, I'll do that. But they didn't come, so I, my inside work didn't work out too well.
3: I love they were invited, though. Yeah, they were.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir well, That's was, about working with Candy Clark. It was a different role for her, I think, than she was used to. But um, I don't know, just didn't, it didn't work as well. And she, she uh, I don't know if this is an insight into her performance but she has said to me that she thought the characters in the movie were too quirky for her uh, sensibility.
3: Candy thought, uh, Candy did a uh, working actress and Candy wanted very much to work with Paul again. They had like landed together in American Graffiti and Candy was always to me very, very candid about the fact she thought uh, the part of Pam was underwritten. And um, still, I was thrilled to have her, she accepted the part and I was thrilled to have her in it. Um, and I know there was one night, again I think it's the night she comes out to visit, where um, they told me that Candy wanted to talk to me um, in the trailer Well, <laughs> Jordan was outside with the Swedish and the French. So I went in and Candy said, Jonathan, I, I don't know how to play this scene. This scene, who is this girl? She said, I don't know how to play this scene. I don't know why she would come out here at night like this. I don't know why she would say these things. I don't even know why she's still living in that dipshit town. And and with each of these things Candy was telling me, I'm realizing how under equipped in a certain vein I am as a director. Because I I guess you know directors should be able to say, well listen. And I was just like, gee, whiz. I'm just saying George Charlie Oaken has just chewed Jordy out for that stuff and the sun's coming like this. And I just didn't know what the heck to say. And I, I just said, you know, let's go out um and try it. And um if there's something you don't want to say, say something different, but let's go out and start filming and, and do it. So, she, and she did. But I think that's probably it. She just was, was convinced that, that there could have been more f- there for her to work with.
2: Yes, good question. Where was the film filmed? What town? Mm-hmm. Where we filmed
1: it, Marysville and Yuba City, two cities, very uh, little towns near each other in California. Where it was supposed to be, I don't know.
3: Yeah, it was anywhere USA, but yeah, and, and the Marysville, Yuba City, very near Sacramento in Northern California, and uh, it was it was great up there, it was great up it there. It was
1: great working there, yeah. and there was a smoky haze in the air some days, do you remember that? I think they were, it was farm country, they were burning something, I don't
3: know what, any farmers, I don't know what you're supposed to burn, but they were burning things, <laughs> We, we tried to cast, uh, we had to cast some of the parts up there for budgetary reasons, and that wonderful lady who is telling her life story and stuff, um, there was nothing scripted for her, and uh, we, were, we, we put out a call for interesting people who <laughs> might want to be in the film, and if especially if you're interested in, in CB radio, and I remember she came in and just started talking about this amazing life she had had, so she was in, you know. I said, see, I, I, that's the way he is, he sees something, he likes, and he goes with it, and you
1: know, the, the, uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, um, I remember, uh, you know, Charles Napier uh, played the trucker and uh, Chrome Angel was his, I don't know what his, I didn't see the movie just now, so I forgot what his real name was supposed to be. But uh, he had muscles and I thought, when I first met him, I didn't know who he was. I thought, oh, Jonathan has hired a trucker to play this part because he had the accent down and everything and uh, so that what well, he didn't respond to your request for interesting people right, right. One, no
3: the uh, chuck was a russ myers superstar yeah i found that out later i
1: didn't you know i was innocent i hadn't seen russ myers movies yeah. <laughs> now i have <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: he actually just passed away yeah, Charles yeah. Napier.
1: Oh, i loved him i loved working with him he, he uh, we stayed in the same uh the Bonanza Inn was it called? Yeah, yeah. And he would sit out by the pool, and he'd say, "I got to get rid of my prison pallor." Is that the right how you pronounce it? Prison pallor. And I thought, "My God, the guy's been in prison."
3: <laughs>
1: but that's the type of he just said things like
3: that. No, Chuck was a was a fascinating, you know, amazing guy and a, a wonderful actor. And it was was so sad when he passed away recently. I, I worked with him about six or seven times, and it, I was never able to. Provide as good a part as the one in *Citizens Band*, and he played like a hairdresser and married to the mob. Um, in in, um, *In Melvin and Howard*, um, it's uh, Chuck's the one that comes yeah. and gives Paul the will. The at will, the gas
1: yeah, that's a pivotal part, yeah. and that was based on a character. I did some reading about that. You know, the more I read about this uh, will and the controversy about it, the more I tend to believe it's uh, true and this guy's code name was Ventura and he came forward after the, well they haven't seen the movie so I don't want to say too much, but he came forward and he said that he had gotten this package from Howard Hughes and that he was a special courier for Howard Hughes and some of the people in Howard Hughes' Hughes's, uh, organization knew him, they didn't like him because Howard Hughes used him for things that he didn't want to ask just anybody to do and that he had this envelope, and he said he was supposed to keep it Howard He was told him to keep, it. I don't know if you know this. Uh, he told him to keep this envelope until he heard that he, is, he, that he died, and then he was supposed to open it up, and he did. He opened it up, and he found this will, and a letter, and a bunch of money, $100 bills, and a note telling him, um, deliver this will to so-and-so, and mail this letter to so-and-so, and the money's for you, for doing this job, and he went and deposited the money, and then he took the will, which is the scene that you're talking about, that Charles Napier played, and and later he came forward, there's a trial, and he gave a deposition uh, under oath that this was true, that he did deliver this will, because the the authorities, rightly so, I think, uh, were rather skeptical of Melvin's story. And, but he backed him up.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think um, that, uh, th- also the, the fact that um, it was, I, th- I think this guy, I, I didn't know as much as, as that, which is an amazing story, but I one thing I heard was that this guy, was Ventura? Mm-hmm. That he was Howard Hughes's guy, and Summa Corporation didn't like him. He would, he would do things outside of Summa. Mm-hmm. And of course, it was, it's implicit in, in the Howard Hughes will, the Melvin Dumar will, that summa is dissolved. That's where all the fortune went to all these other places, including Melvin Dumar. And uh, uh, so that was, that was kind of part of the thing. We filmed, if, if you see the movie, um, it's, uh, uh, the, the credits, the opening credits are in Howard Hughes's handwriting and um, the courtroom that we um, have, the there's a trial scene, and that's the courtroom where the trial happened, where Melvin was, was put on the stand. The, uh, Dabney Coleman plays the judge, and what he says in our movie is exactly what, uh, what he says to Paul in the movie is exactly what the real judge said to Melvin Dumar at the time of this hearing, and the real judge was in the courtroom. He agreed to be uh, in the shot with the original stenographers, we, ha- we, we duplicated the, that reality quite a bit. And uh, I asked the judge, because um, uh, uh, he was skeptical. do not spoil the movie now for some. No, time. no, no, this, this doesn't spoil, I mean, that, that there's this contested will, yeah. surely. But no, I, I asked the judge if I could talk to him for a minute, and he said, sure, and we went into his, his chambers, and I said, do you think there's any possibility, and I know what you said, um, and I know that it was thrown out, you know, he, he, this, this, this bill was thrown out. said, Do you think there's any chance that that um, could conceivably have been the, the real thing? And he, he said, I'll tell you two things. One is that um, if it was a forgery, and he said, This is what haunted me in reaching my judgment. If it was a forgery, um, it was the longest forgery in the history of forgeries because it wasn't. It was a handwritten will. It wasn't just signing Howard Hughes' name that the calligraphers said yes or no. Whoever, you know, the Boy Scouts of America was one of the beneficiaries. That's a complicated issue right there. There were a like, lot of beneficiaries. But the, so everybody was hiring these lawyers. So he said, you know, that, that's an extraordinary act of forgery to do an entire five-page handwritten will. The other thing is that it was hard not to believe Melvin Dumar. The facts were against it. But so, so he was like, he was like after all those years, he he just he wasn't saying, oh no, absolutely. So I like to think it was real.
1: Uh, I wasn't sure at the time, but since that time, I met someone who uh, worked on the new candid camera. Have you heard of it? it? Was it was on about ten years ago? And he said um, that he was. On the crew for the new Canada camera, and they were filming a, a an episode segment at the dunes or the sands. I forget which is the anyway. There's a hotel in the beginning, right, where yeah. I take Melvin takes Howard Hughes to this dunes, ho- right? dunes, but it's not the Desert Inn, which is where Howard Hughes lived. And um, the police had uh, scoffed at Melvin, apparently, that he would lie and not even know the right hotel in his lie when he told his story that he had dropped off Howard Hughes behind the hotel. They thought, you know, you're a jerk. You know, we can't, this isn't even the hotel he lived in. You didn't take him there, and Melvin insisted. I don't care what you say. That's where I took him. He wanted to go there, and he wanted to go in the back of the hotel. Now this guy from the candid camera show said when they were just filming this, I'll make this quick, because I know there are other questions. He said that um, the manager of the hotel, and this just happened you know, five years ago or something, took us in the back to show us the secret hideaway <laughs> that Howard Hughes had arranged to keep there behind that hotel, the Dunes Hotel, or the Sands, whatever it was, that no one was supposed to know about, just him and the owner of the hotel, and the, he... It's still there, apparently, and kept in the way that Howard Hughes kept it, and that he used to come there when he wanted to get away from the corporation. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and you will too after you see the film. Uh, before we go, because we do have to. Set uh, one up more question. Show. One more question. Okay, this gentleman over here on this side. Well, when we show stop making sense, yeah. we'll, we'll bring Jonathan back.
3: The big suit was—he uh, asked a, a a fashion designer. Um, he said, I, "I want I want my my head to look little when I'm um, uh, performing uh, to a couple of songs at the end. How should how should I do that?" And the guy drew the big suit on a cocktail napkin at the bar, and that's, that's how that happened. <laughs> wow. But I was gonna ask you, Jonathan, before you
2: appeared in the New York Film Festival as a filmmaker in 1977 with you know Handle With Care, Citizens Band, uh, you also worked at the New York Film Festival years before, and you told me a, a great story before, and I'm wondering if you would relate that to the audience, of when you worked at the festival as a publicist.
3: Yeah, well, I, I worked for Pathé Contemporary Films and uh, uh, they distributed, like, like, several of the new Godard films and stuff. And Richard, I don't remember what I told you. There were so many things <laughs> going in those, on in those colitis What about cult. Truffaut? Oh, oh, Truffaut. OK. Well, th- yeah, that, that was, um, uh, yes. OK, the, very, very quickly, because I know thing. But uh, I was working as a publicist for United Artists. This is before I, uh, This was after my little tenure at Pathé Contemporary, and uh, François Truffaut was coming to town um, to publicize *The Bride Wore Black*, and I was a insane Truffaut fan. I was, just, you know, everybody in New York, you know, everyone who was a publicist. Um, we, we were all just obsessed when we all knew each other, and just like, like so, Truffaut's coming. I work at UA. I volunteer to pick him up. And um, I uh, went out to the airport to meet him. Um, I couldn't find my Truffaut button, so I wore my Jean-Luc Godard button instead, <laughs> which Truffaut was like, what? No, que, qu'est-ce que c'est? So he didn't speak much. He, didn't, he chose not to speak too much English. He's probably a little shy. His English was probably, got better over the course of the five days I, that I took him around to all these interviews. Um, but. Um, he, uh, he was terrific, I, when, when I picked him up at the airport and took him to the Algonquin, Algonquin Hotel, as I'm ushering him up, I'm like 22 years old or something like that, and God has landed, and I'm <laughs> ushering him up to the, to the registration desk, and before anything happens, the guy behind the desk at, at the Algonquin, which is such a great place, you know, looks, at, uh, looks up and goes, oh, Monsieur Truffaut, welcome, uh, Signor Rossellini left this note for you. <laughs> And I was like, handwritten for... And I was like, oh, my God, this was pre-Ebay, or I would have, like... You know, like... <laughs> so, um, so, so, anyway, I sh- took him around, and I tried to... Um, uh, uh, Bride uh War Black was based on a novel by Cornell Woolrich, William Irish, who wrote so many fantastic um, uh, stories that were turned into great films by, you know, Hitchcock, and there's m- many of them. And I found out that, that Cornell Woolrich was living in New York... Um, in residence at the Sheraton Russell Hotel, which is no longer there on Park Avenue, so I thought, oh my God, I've, I've got to you know, the, again the, the buff in me. It's like the, you know, pretending to like do a thorough job here. I'm like, ah, I, I can meet Cornell. So I, I called up, got put through to him, explained to him that Francois Truffaut had made a film of The Bride Wore Black. He's coming to town soon, and I would love to arrange a screening. Um, of of the film, and Cornell Woolrich told me on the phone. He said he said, you know, um, uh, one of my legs was amputated, um, uh, you know, about ten years ago. I don't really go out very much. I'm not so sure. And I said, I'll send a car for you um, with a team of people. That would be me and you know another crazy young publicist named Paul Wolf. You know, and we'll send people to help you get and then the elevator up to the thing like this. And he says, okay, okay and he gave me a time that he would screen it. It was about a week later, so I show up with Paul Wolf and with the this, this special car and um, with, with a backup wheelchair just in case and um, call him up on the house phone. It rings and rings and rings and rings and rings. there's no answer. So I said to the guy at the front desk, excuse me, I said, we're, we're here to pick up Mr. Woolrich because there's a screening's been arranged for him. And he said, oh, Mr. Woolrich never goes out. Um, and I said, well, well, he must be out, because he's not picking up his phone. He said, no, he's not picking up his phone, because he's not picking up his phone. Mm. And um, I was like, can I just go up? Maybe he's not like this. So I went up to his room, and I banged <laughs> on the door. Mr. Woolridge! Huh? Like this, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> so anyway, I told Francois Truffaut this story, um, and he was amused and intrigued and everything by that, as he would be. So anyway, now it's time to take him to the airport. So we're on the way to the airport, and I brought my Truffaut Hitchcock book, which is the film buff's ultimate Bible, <laughs> certainly in, in those times, and I think to this day. Um, and I said, would you autograph you know, my Truffaut Hitchcock book for me? And he says, huh? So he takes it, and he writes this thing in it. And um, I open up, I take a look at it, and it says, Poor John Demi, avec... Uh, Mais amitiés, and before your first film Francois Truffaut and I was like oh this is awesome I said but you know I don't I, I'm, I'm not I'm not interested um, in, in directing and 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 he was he was like yes you are like that <laughs> and I was like well thanks anyway you know like thank you <laughs> so then in 1977 citizens band gets invited to the New York Film Festival and I look at what else is there. Francois Truffaut's The Green Room is on the lineup. And I went, oh my God, now I've got an excuse to call Truffaut. I could like this. And I called him up with echoes of the, of the Cornell Woolrich story. And the phone was answered by Helen Scott, who was um, Truffaut's. Everything and bodyguard and everything. And um, I asked if I could speak to him. And she said, well, he's resting uh, now. Why, why, why do you want to speak with him? And I said, well, I'm a director. And, blah, 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 blah. and I told her a quick version of what I've just said here. And she said, okay, well, I, his schedule's pretty busy. And we'll try to get back to you. And I said, well, can, I'll just punch in again tomorrow. She said, no, 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 don't, don't, don't. We'll, we'll, I'll try, to, we'll try to get back to you. So I never you know, got to have that savory moment of saying, you wrote that, and now I'm in the festival with you, <laughs> like that. Um, so that was that. Was that. So. Great story. <laughs> Jonathan, Paul, thank you so
2: much for coming.
3: Thank you very thank much. Thank
2: you.
0: close-up from the film society of lincoln center is produced by michael odemark our opening music is by steelism you can subscribe to the close-up on itunes and stitcher the film society of lincoln center is a non-profit arts organization based in new york city supported by individuals just like you